0: This interview of Wisdom from the Top was recorded in 2020. From Luminary and Built It Productions, it's Wisdom from the Top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, the story of Steve Molenkoff and Qualcomm.
1: There's a real advantage that I always felt that we had just because the company and the key people in the company have been through this. A lot of tough things. They, they've, they've already played in a tough gym. They know what it feels like. And so when you have to do tough things, they know that things will get better because they've been through it.
0: How a young engineer named Steve Molenkoff rose up the ranks to become CEO of Qualcomm and then lead the company through some of its highest and lowest moments. So if you're listening to this podcast on a smartphone, it is very likely that embedded in your phone is technology created by Qualcomm. The company essentially makes the invisible things that powers the technology most of us rely on, particularly the chips inside your phone. But another huge part of their business is licensing their technology to third parties who then pay Qualcomm a fee. And because Qualcomm operates in one of the most competitive industries on Earth, its CEO, Steve Molenkoff, is always on the lookout for what's around the corner. Steve's rise at Qualcomm started at the bottom. He literally answered a help-wanted ad in the newspaper. And when he went to work at Qualcomm in the early 1990s, cell phone technology was still in the comparative Stone Age. For example, if you had a phone in L.A. and you traveled to Las Vegas there was a good chance it wouldn't work there. But being part of the company, especially in those early days when so many challenges still needed to be worked out, gave Steve an opportunity to show what he could do. And becoming CEO was not part of that plan. Steve studied at Virginia Tech and had a relatively modest goal to become an engineer at a technology company.
1: I tell the story all the time about how I became an electrical engineer. Essentially, I, I went there wanting to be a mechanical engineer, work on cars and you mm. know, see how transmissions work. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. But my freshman year, at the end of my freshman year, you had a chance to pick which specialty you were going to go to electrical, mechanical, chemical, whatever. Uh, and I had good enough grades that I could choose anything I wanted to. And I basically asked them, what's the hardest one to get into? They said electrical. And I said, OK, I'll take that one. That's essentially how much thought I gave <laughs> to electrical engineering. Of course, that probably the most important decision in my career. It was not terribly well thought out, uh, but I ended up liking it a
0: lot, and I ended up ultimately going into um, electrical. It, it, tell me, I mean, this is the 1980s, right, or, or, or late 80s, I guess, when you're, you're studying electrical engineering. And were you learning about motherboards and semiconductors and, uh, you know, CPUs? I mean, this is still kind of early PC revolution, right? Yeah. When I was at Virginia Tech, the freshman class, we were the first freshman class to have their own computers.
1: Right. But it was really a mix. It was, you know, the big rage back then was really, I would say, communications. It Mm -hmm. was uh, pre-cell phone. Digital communications was not a thing that the average person ran into. Right. You you know, if you were a stockbroker or a doctor, you might have an FM cell phone. Remember, they were really big. Sure. But if you did digital communications, you were probably working on satellite programs for the military at the time. But I, I really gravitated toward taking as many classes across as broad a spectrum of topics as I could. And that's what I did at Virginia Tech and then specialized when I got to Michigan.
0: Michigan is where you did a master's degree, also Correct. in electrical engineering. You graduate, I think, in 1994, you end up at Qualcomm. Is that right? That's right. So your first job out of college, this is like nine years after the company was founded. Presumably, this is what your ambition was, right? Like you thought, all right, I'm going to be get in the engineering and uh, see how it goes. It was. It was, I would say I was in the second wave of
1: big growth. The company had already gone public, but we were ramping up really to drive CDMA, which was actually not the world's favored digital standard.
0: Right, right. And I should say that uh, CDMA and GSM, they're they're both basically kind of like radio systems, right, that were used in in cell phones, right?
1: Correct. And so I was really more of the view. I wonder if anybody really knows what we do. (laughs) down here. I mean, we're,
0: you know, we're, we're like a, a company that's behind the scenes. Yeah, right. You power all this technology that we use, but we don't have a one-to-one relationship with you like we do with an iPhone or a Samsung that's right. phone. That's yeah. right.
1: I always tell people we're kind of like gravity. We move things around, <laughs> you can't see us, yeah. but we're, we're important. So we, we were probably, you can think of us as kind of like the Rebel Army trying to make sure that our technology was deployed. Mm. And uh, so I was in the, uh, I would say, the big ramp up of the Rebel Army. And essentially what happened was the whole idea. I mean, for me, I didn't know if the company was going to work. I didn't know if I was going to be able to make it. And the the kind of deal that I made with my wife, informal deal was, we'll try it for a year or so and see if I do well, see if the company does well. I was very lucky because I got great assignments early on in my career. And then I was able to work in an environment where if you just put the company first, you succeeded both kind of personally, but also in your career. And so for me, what happened was when I started at Qualcomm, Essentially, what they did was they said, everybody who's experienced, you can work on this project. Everybody who's new, you can work on this other project. And so I got to work on the other project because I was just right out of college. And it was a, a big, big program that basically was trying to figure out how you extend cellular beyond cities. And it probably wasn't as important to the company as the big cellular program, but it was an opportunity for all the new grads
0: to go in and just get assignments that they really shouldn't have had so
1: early in their career.
0: And, and just to clarify, so you were because this is like 94, 95, I mean, cell phones were obviously now starting to become more available. They were still expensive, um, and not as as widely uh, used, obviously, as today. You were focused on on expanding service beyond cities, like what to where to like rural areas? Rural, rural areas, yeah. The, the, at that time,
1: and there was a big argument as to whether whether the technologies would even work. But the view was, well, in the future, you're going to want to be able to, there'll be an opportunity to cover areas outside of the metropolitan areas because that'll be the only areas where cell phones will be deployed. Oh, right. Um, and so we, what we did was we had a big LEOSAT or low-Earth orbit satellite program to try to extend that. It was, it was uh, back then, if you had a cell phone, a lot of times people would have it turned off and they would have it in their glove compartment and they would turn it back on if they uh, had car trouble. So it was a completely different use case. Now the company, I will tell you, the company at that time, the view was that is not what the cell phone is going yeah. to be used for. The cell phone is going to be used as a, a pocket computer. And, Already uh, in 94, 95, people are saying that. Oh, yeah. yeah. When we were we were working on really the fundamental technologies to make that happen, which, you know, the history of Qualcomm essentially is we're working on the technologies that industries need about 10 years from mm-hmm. now. Uh, and, and we've been very successful in doing that. And, and,
0: you know, the roadmap continues. Presumably, I guess a couple years in, you started to find some success in your early thirties. You were promoted to vice president of engineering. A couple things. I mean, whenever I talk to people who are engineers, they always say, you know, it's it's less political than like the business side of a company or the marketing side, because engineers are focused on on fact based solutions. You know, they're focused on just solving yeah. problems. There's a lot of collaboration. They're they're nerds and they love getting into the. Was that your experience that it wasn't like a political? Because rising up the ranks of a corporation can be super political.
1: Yeah, but I would say our our company is basically filled with engineers, so it is it is not nothing but engineers. Hmm. In many cases, an engineer's career path is dependent upon what assignments they get, and then can they be successful? And really, can they can they rally other people? Can they have influence beyond their direct management line? Hmm. And in particular, in our company, because we're we're so kind of uh, multidisciplinary, meaning we have hardware, software, systems engineering, testing. Ultimately, to be successful, you have to be able to blend all that together. Yeah. Um, I tell you what—what what was helpful to me was I got great assignments that were always, always pushed me, or or were kind of risky assignments. You know, if you were just planning your career, you wouldn't take these assignments. Hmm. But I was given them just because they were the right thing to do for the company, and it ended up that they always turned out to be the thing that the company really needed to do. You know, sometimes a company has to bet against itself. Yeah. And um, I always ended up getting those assignments, and they ended up becoming very
0: important ultimately. You know, in a previous episode, we interviewed Greg Wasson, the former CEO of Walgreens, and he was a pharmacist. I mean, he, that's what he studied at Purdue, and that was his intention. His, his life's ambition was to open up a pharmacy in uh, you know, Lafayette, Indiana. He went on to become the CEO of Walgreens. The irony is he was recruited to Walgreens. Uh, because of his background and training as a pharmacist, but he never actually served as a pharmacist. He went into managing a store and then two stores and then six stores and then regional and so on. Um, But you were actually doing engineering work from the beginning. At what point do you remember making the transition out of actually sitting in rooms and looking at equations and, um, you know, talking to other scientists? And, And when do you remember when you actually stopped doing the technical work oh absolutely yeah so, so here, here's what tends to happen at least at least at qualcomm there are some people who
1: are tremendous individual contributors in their particular area so they might be a communication systems engineer or they may work on graphics or whatever and they're just tremendous they're world leaders in that area but what makes a company go is really the people that blend a number of really really smart people and get them working in the right direction mm-hmm. and in particular they have to figure out not only what we can do but really what we should do which ends up being in a company that is innovation focused the burden falls on the engineers because if you're if you're not figuring out what you should be doing all you're doing is measuring what the rest of the market is doing and reacting. And so what happens at Qualcomm is you eventually get to this point where you're the project engineer, which yeah. means you're, you're responsible for the multidisciplinary side. And, you know, you're trying to figure out what you need to do, when you need to do it. And in a lot of cases, you're basically saying, this is the schedule that we have to meet, guys. Let's yeah. figure it out. I ended up getting into that in the kind of 2000, 2001 timeframe. And then eventually I got about 2007, they wanted me to go to the business side at that time, I think I'm a, an SVP of engineering. Yeah. And I remember calling my dad when I became an mm-hmm. SVP, this is probably 2005 or six or something. And, and I said, Hey, this is probably the last promotion that I'll ever get. So if you want to tell me congratulations, <laughs> this is the time to do it. And I was like, wow, I'm, you know, engineering at Qualcomm. Yeah. I'm an SVP. SVP right? How did this happen? Awesome. And, uh, and then they eventually said, Hey, we want you to go on the business side. And I, re- and I actually refused to do it. I said, I'm not going to do it. And you know, the joke was, I'm not going to go over to the dark yeah. side because I'm on in the Jedi council or whatever. And um effectively what they told me was in addition to we're the heads of the company we'll tell you what the right yeah. thing is for the company reminding me of that. Yeah. Of course, but the other one was um you're already doing it, you just don't realize yeah. it.
0: You know, it's worth kind of just kind of reflecting on this for a moment which is which is to say that in in many instances, you know, when when people have a specialty and then they eventually take on a leadership role and oversee, as you experience, a multidisciplinary group of people. They weren't necessarily the best engineer. Like you probably weren't the best engineer in your among your peers. Like they were probably engineers who were way better, but you were better at kind of gathering people together and helping to get them to collaborate, I guess.
1: Yeah, I think that's very true in my case. People ask me all the time, what what's the key skill to being an engineer? It's in a lot of cases it's writing an email that gets another 100 engineers to do
0: something. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's true. I think that's very true. So as you kind of transitioned away from really the strictly the technical side to the business mm-hmm. side, I guess you were initially put in charge of the chips, the chipset business, which is, I think, at that time and probably still today, the biggest part of Qualcomm's business? Yeah, it was largest by revenue, but... but Not by profit. Um, yeah, you know, what happened, I,
1: I became the head of the chip division kind of right at the time when... The smartphone was happening and LTE was happening. And although it would maybe seem odd right now, the view at the time was maybe that's not a good thing for Qualcomm. Hmm. The smartphone and uh, LTE may not be great Hmm. uh, for us because we're so strong in these other areas.
0: And just to clarify, I mean, you were strong with GSM and CDMA, um, kind of the older systems for cell phones. Um, So when, when smartphones sort of started to become more common and then LTE comes out, which is sort of like the next generation, right, of of wireless technology that sort of opens up the space for you to grow. Um, from, From what I understand, there were actually doubts that you could make the leap to that new technology.
1: Yeah, I think similarly, when we got to smartphones and we got to LTE, everybody said, well, you're good at CDMA, but you'll never be good at LTE. And you'll never be good at the chips required for smartphones because it's all about the processor and things like that. And so we had to be good at those technologies as well. Anyway, so what happened was when we were going through those big transitions, I always found my way, not due to any great planning, just more due to circumstances that I was, you know, ended up in a leadership position in each case. And so when I was leading the chip division, uh, it was right when we were starting to do the ramp up into smartphones and LTE. And in fact, we had to really focus on that in a big way and it was really fun for for some of us because we you know we had an opportunity to once again show people that we could
0: succeed in an area where they said we weren't going to be successful. Mm-hmm. So think 2007 the iPhone comes out and that obviously kind of ignites the smartphone revolution. I mean how big was Qualcomm? I mean was Qualcomm technology used in I don't know 50, 60, 70, 80% of smartphones at that point or 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 not quite yet.
1: Why well, say Every smartphone, every cell phone in the world uses Qualcomm technology. Wow. I mean, if you look at it, uh, and then some of them also use our uh, our chips. I mean, if you look, the fundamental technology that makes cellular happen, the fact that there's even an industry, is because a small group of companies got together and figured out how the cellular network was going to work, and they did fundamental research to allow that to occur. Qualcomm is clearly in that bucket and had a significant uh, play in it. So it's, it's about... Getting the fundamental technologies and then scaling it worldwide so that many people can use it.
0: Becoming the senior vice president was not your last promotion. You went on to be yeah. the executive vice president, president of the chip business, and then group president and president and COO. 2014, you are named the CEO. You are the, you become the first person from outside the family, uh, from the Jacobs family, to to take a, take this over. Uh, that's a pretty big deal, right? A family business. And then a non-family member kind of takes over this thing that they built. Yeah, was def- I mean, it's definitely there's
1: there's uh, it's it's interesting to be the first person, not of the family. But remember, i I'd been there since 1994. Since so, you were a yeah. baby, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, I was uh, I kind of grew up in the company as well.
0: When you take over in 2014 as CEO, Qualcomm had been dealing with a an antitrust investigation that that the Chinese government had launched into. Um, Qualcomm's business practices, it was really affecting the stock price. You kind of take over as CEO in the middle of this investigation. I mean, how disruptive was that? Was it disruptive for you at the time? It was. I mean, if, if I believe, if I
1: remember correctly, if something like 31 days after the Chinese did a midnight raid of our China offices, that's when I was named CEO.
0: Wow.
1: And that it was, you know, a big thing to try to resolve. I mean, when you're you're negotiating with the Chinese government, you know, that's a you're not really in a, in a symmetrical situation in terms
0: of uh, balance of power. But we we ended up working our way through it. Yeah, I mean, especially because I think almost half of your revenue came from China, right? At that at that point. Yeah, it was a, it was a big piece of the business for sure. And and just to kind of. Sort of thirty five thousand foot description of this. It's not it's not the whole story. Is from the Chinese perspective that antitrust investigation had to do with patent licensing, for example, and and chip sales uh, in in China. Correct. So what were your options? I mean, you take over. It's thirty one days after the raid. You got to resolve this. You're not going to beat the Chinese government. Presumably, that's the calculation you, you all made early on. Well, it was it was probably even more
1: significant in the sense that at the time, I would say we probably. Not probably. We we didn't have the right relationships in China.
0: Hmm.
1: You know, the relationships that we had were were very much uh, focused on, I would say, our direct customers and our carrier partners, which are very very important. Remember, we work very closely with carriers around the world to make sure their technology roadmap is is working. But we didn't really have as broad a relationship with the Chinese government as we really needed to have. And in fact, I always, I always tell people. The, the thing that we learned was you need to have not just a relationship with the people that you do direct business with, but the people who give them permission to do that business. Right. So what happened was we had to spend the next year or probably 18 months trying to figure out what relationships do we need in China. So what I ended up doing was I spent a lot of time in China. Talking to other multinationals, not so much about their business, but how do they organize? How do they get here? Huh. Who do they talk to? And showing up to all these different forums that we really should have been going to for a long time. So years, it, earlier, right? yeah. years earlier, right? Years earlier. And you effectively then get a sense for what it is you need to do. And there, there's um, eventually, you know, any, any government or, 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 or company, they want to get themselves through an issue. They're not, they're not trying to destroy people. They're trying to get to a, get to some result. And uh, you just have to be in a position to get the signal that lets you know what you need to do. And, and that's really what, what we ended up doing. We also got to improve our relationships with the, the U.S. government and understand how they could help us resolve this as well. And, and that, that really helped us get through the NDRC investigation. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's
2: Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST.
4: Generative AI is not a one-size-fits-all. If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill, and Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit anthropic.com/claude today. This is interesting because this is the beginning. I mean, a big company and a successful
0: company like Qualcomm is also a big target for all kinds of competitors, right? And one of the ways that you go after a big target is you, you sue them. You try to hamstring them. This is um, uh, this is the beginning of what would be a series of challenges and crises that you then begin to navigate over the next five years. I want to go back to some of these moments you are working through this with the Chinese government um, and eventually agreed to pay a fine, almost a billion dollars. But around that time, I think it's 2015, the the stock price is taking a hit. I think at one point it it was down 16%. You're running a public company. Obviously, you've got multiple constituencies, your employees, your customers, and shareholders, right? And as, as as often happens, activist investors get involved and they come to Qualcomm and they say, we want you guys to split the company because you've got your chip business, your licensing business, your technology licensing business makes more money. Let's split this up. Uh, here you are, you're the CEO. T- take me back to that to, to that sure. that activist investor kind of uprising.
1: Yeah, it's what 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 happened. Um, we resolved China, and I think that gave people an opportunity to come in and kind of suggest some changes to add value to the company, and. Um, in the early days, you're really trying to take advantage of the growth that the end market provides. You have a lot of of tailwinds as a result. Mm -hmm. But then when the
0: end market kind of plateaus a bit, then you have to figure out how you're going to operate differently. In other words, when 30% growth seems normal, which it's not, and then you get to 6% growth, and that is actually closer to normal, that's disruptive. Yeah. And so that happened really in the first two years of being and in many cases,
1: actually the first year of being CEO, uh, we had to really change the way the company was structured.
0: well why was that happening
1: well it's just, it's just natural actually. <laughs> you just look at any company that that is in the early days and they're really trying to figure out how do to take advantage of all this all this yeah. growth in the in the end market and if you're lucky enough you 'll get to the point where you take advantage of that you 're successful and ultimately those markets become more saturated and the growth plateaus and that 's what happened with us because we were so focused and we it's a natural thing. Just the market itself, everyone's got a, got a cell phone. The penetration worldwide of people getting cell phones went to essentially a, 100%, and it became more of a replacement rate market. right? Uh, and so that changes the end market growth and changes the way you have to operate as a company. And that's traditionally when you start to get outside influencing, convincing you to move more quickly. And we certainly had that in the case of, of an activist at that time.
0: I mean, it sounds like your description of the activist-investor... Is a generous description that you're saying, well, they came in with some advice and suggestions, and I know that you took some of that that advice on board. But from what I've read, I mean, they were really pushing the company to split, um, which doesn't sound like the company wanted to do. Well,
1: they they had a number of things. We did some of them. We didn't do other ones. On the question of split, you know, we we actually did look at it, and uh, we just decided not not to do that. And the shareholders agreed that was the right the right decision. What we ended up doing was actually um, we put together a special committee to make sure we looked at it comprehensively. Huh. And and I you know ultimately I think uh, the the shareholders and and even you know the particular shareholder that suggested this was comfortable with the solution that we came up with, and actually even the process that we followed.
0: I mean, here's the thing, right? You have activist investors saying, "Look, split the company up; it'll be more profitable. Do all of these cost-cutting measures." Which you did some of those things, many of those things. But at the same time, you also have to keep an eye out for what is going to come down the road, right? How how to position the company to be competitive in two, four, six years from from that point. But does doesn't an activist intervention kind of become all-consuming?
1: No, what happens is it does produce a lot of extra effort, but not for the whole company. There's a cohort of people that it consumes the time, but it's not the same cohort that actually is working on the next product. And in fact, what you had to make sure happened and what we ended up doing was making sure that we weren't losing our focus on the future. And so essentially what happened was we accelerated our spending on 5G during that time period. If you look at the key decisions that were made, we actually accelerated, brought in and made sure that we were going to be successful on 5G. And, you know, it was, it may sound like, wow, that was a really a a brave thing to do. But my view was 5G is going to happen. We got to make sure we're number one.
0: Yeah. You know, I've, I've interviewed um, founders and CEOs like Ron Shake, for example, who founded Panera. He's now retired. And, you know, one of the things that he's talked about is the challenge he had being a publicly traded company, which is your, your time horizons are just different. Um, I mean, obviously, you took advice from activist investors and made changes, but – You know, are there things that you couldn't do then and that you can't do now for the long term because essentially shareholders want – they want a return, right? They want you to focus on getting them the maximum return in the shortest period of time.
1: Yeah, there's always some tension there. You know, there's always things that we wish we could do. But eventually, we've always been able to do the big things, the things that you absolutely have to do. There's a real – Advantage that I always felt that we had, just because the company and the key people in the company have been through this a lot of tough things. They, they've they've already played in a tough gym. They know what it feels like, and so when you have to do tough things, they know that
0: uh, things will get better
1: hmm. because they've because they've
0: been through. I it. mean, is there sort of like a calculation you make in your head, like, okay, we can give there, but really, what matters to me is this thing, and it may take five years, but I think I can still focus on this thing and still deliver, you know, the short term or medium-term profits.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a constant discussion within the management team. But I can tell you, the thing that you wanna make sure you do, and, and part of the job of the CEO, in my view, is to make sure that the things that only they can do happen. Yeah. And that is exactly one of them. You need to make sure that the most important thing that the is responsible for happens. Sometimes you have to take some personal risk in order to do that, but that's kind of the territory.
0: So around this time, 2015, one of the decisions you make you have to cut costs. So there's there's going to be layoffs, uh, which happened. At the same time, I guess you start to think, all right, 5G is where you're you're putting your research money, but also looking into the Internet of Things. This is something that you thought, you know, the smartphone market is going to slow down. We should be looking at, you know, refrigerators and and coffee makers. And is that w- what you start to think?
1: Yes, but I'd say, uh, maybe I'll rephrase it slightly. I mean, there's a nuance to it that I think is maybe instructive to understand kind of the way we think about it, which is this technology that we're working on, the value is not just in the cellular market, it's in these other industries. So the question is, what do we need to do to structure our business so that we can take this technology, which we know will be very important to these other industries, Mm. and then how do we get that to market across more channels? What do we need to do to make sure that other people can take advantage of it? So if you look at 5G, for example, only 20% of it or some very small percentage really
0: will accrue to the traditional cellular industry. Right, because from a consumer's perspective, we think 5G is going to make my phone faster and going to make it do more things. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. Tip of the iceberg, yeah. The, The economic impact of 5G to connecting
1: things is so high that we have to make sure that we can service those markets as well, which is why it's got so much geopolitical interest right now, right. Is because everyone knows that that's the underpinning of the economy
0: in 10 years. Can you kind of lay that out from just from sure. a consumer standpoint? What What is it actually, what, how is that going to change how we behave and operate and live? Sure. Let me, let me give you two kind of vectors. First, the first one is
1: cellular. So if you, look at, if you look at cellular right now, tremendous amount of technology went into cellular over a 30-year period to get you to have a connected mm-hmm. computer in your pocket. And there's been enormous change in the way in which the Internet works just for small amounts of technology. We put a connected computer that can run an OS in your pocket. It's connected to the Internet, and it has a camera, and it has um, position location. Very small amounts of technology, really. Kind of in the grand scheme of things. And now you have companies like Instagram, you have companies like uh, Uber, and all we did was connect people's pocket to the internet. 5G enables that continued progression. But that's not the most interesting part. The most interesting part is the second vector, which is most industries are trying to figure out how do I deal with the fact that everything is connected. My mm. customers are connected, my logistics are connected, my factory is gonna be connected. All the machinery in the factory are gonna be connected. What are the ramifications of that to my business? So if you, look at, if you look at a car company, what really defines now the driving experience of a car, it's really a smartphone experience. I mean, that's really what, one of the great things that Tesla did was kind of demonstrate that. Mm. The way that the uh, user interface works, it's, it's very much an experience that came from the smartphone space. Now, if you look, Car companies are trying to figure out not only how do I extend that and get every car connected and sharing information and what does that mean, but they're looking at their factories and they're saying, how do I reconfigure my factories more quickly? We actually anticipated that use case and built that into 5G. And the same thing's happening to retail, same things happening to healthcare, same things happen to education, logistics, a number of other industries. And the same thing that happened with electricity, displacing steam power, it just has significant impacts to the way in which people run their, their businesses and the way in which it works. What Qualcomm's doing is basically saying, how do I light the fuse on all of that? How do I make it easy for people to take advantage of this technology so they can innovate on top of it? And that's... Yeah. That's when we
0: tend to do very well as a company and, you know, we kind of see it. I guess around 2016, NXP, at the time the world's biggest smartphone chip maker, comes to Qualcomm and says, hey, uh, maybe you want to buy part of our business. You decide that maybe you should buy NXP outright. And by October of that year, you announced that indeed you were going to acquire NXP. What was the thinking behind that? Was that just going to become just expand your business geometrically? Yeah, there were a couple things
1: behind that. One was it was a way of accelerating really our growth and our channels into the automobile space and into the Internet of Things space. It's really a simplified way to think about it. Not so much to get new technologies, but it was to get the opportunity to sell those technologies through people that really know know how to do it. Now, there's also
0: very good technology there, but I'm simplifying Mm. it. You begin negotiating this deal in June of 2016. Things seem to be going Well, um, and from what I understand, you start to hit serious headwinds just days after the 2016 election, which was the Chinese government, Chinese regulators refusing to approve the deal. Uh, What, uh, (laughs) because as far as I understand, it was like a done deal, basically, at that point, right?
1: Yeah, it was was probably a little bit later. What, What essentially happened was it took a while to get. Uh, approval in Europe, and then ultimately, uh, by the time the Chinese wanted to approve it, I think we had gotten into trade war time, which hmm. uh, it, it was just bad timing, and we got kind of caught up in that. Not related to either company, but it was a difficult time to work
0: in. So the deal ultimately didn't work out. Qualcomm just basically walks away from this deal in twenty eighteen after after what you you came to the conclusion that it just was not ever going to get approved. Yeah. What what happened
1: was we, instead of extending the merger agreement with NXP, we just decided that it was best to to move on. And and the lesson of that whole thing is there's really a a time that deals have to get done. And, you know, once you get to the end of that time, you're better off just moving on for both companies. And, you know, if you look today, both companies are doing quite well.
0: Meantime, in the middle of this negotiation with NXP, you have two more challenges happening. You've got Apple files an antitrust lawsuit against Qualcomm basically saying look you know we don't want to pay licensing fees to use your patents in our technology cuz we're already paying you for the chips and then the FTC files an antitrust lawsuit against Qualcomm at the same time so here's really where I'm what I'm trying to figure out which is how do you how do you sort of decide how to focus your energy i mean that's a lot of because as a ceo presumably You've your fingers in all these pies.
1: Yeah, I did. Again, it was, it was a small cohort of people, and it was a constant. Adrenaline rush is the wrong term, but it, 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 there is a bit of that. I mean, you, you're constantly. Plus, I think it's stress. Yeah, there's a lot of stress, but there's a certain amount of, of uh, you're responsible for this. You need to make sure the company gets through it. And certain people like that. Certain people don't like that. Uh, apparently, uh, I like that. And so, uh, so it worked out. But you do find that not everybody works well in that
0: environment. But luckily, we had enough people that do. Here's what I'm curious about: you uh, deal with Apple all the time. I mean, you must have tons of relationships with a company like Apple and other um, companies that you work with. When you get sued by companies that you work with and have a relationship with, what is that? Is it? Do you take it personally? How does? Or do you just think it's sort of the price of doing business? It's it's really more considered doing business.
1: Sometimes things are made personal or may look like it's personal, but you really don't take it quite that way. You're used to it. I mean, I mentioned that we play in a tough gym. It's just part of playing in a tough gym. Now, here's the problem. Your family is not used to that. Uh, your yeah. neighbors are not used to that. The people you see in the grocery store are not used to that. And so they they sort of lay a lot of uh, of their own emotional stress on you, and you have to kind of tell them, hey don't read the newspaper anymore. You're not built to deal with this, so don't try. And and that's kind of what you have to do.
0: But even if you believe you are right and that you will win those lawsuits, it's still a tremendous amount of time yeah. and focus. And it's costly. I mean, it, e- even with a big multi-billion dollar company like Qualcomm, it's like playing a video game and, and, and shooting arrows at the giant monster. You know, you, you are going to do some damage to the monster, right? Yeah. And not to call come a monster, but I have to imagine that all of these investigations, litigations, even though you know they were all resolved or, or settled, did put you at a certain point. I mean, you, you were—you must have been battered and bruised.
1: Yeah, I remember we were—we were always the small. We were the little guy. <laughs> we were not the monster. We were. we going up against Apple, obviously a bigger company, yeah, and but, Chinese yeah. government. I mean, a number of a number of cases we were. We were the little one walking in with, I think, great technology, but never never overwhelming weapons. Uh, you know, so we, we always felt like right. we'd work our way through it, but we were going to
0: take some shots. And uh, part of what your job is is to take it so that other people don't have to take it. And how do you reassure people? I mean, you got anxious employees. They're reading the papers. Yeah. They're looking at the newspaper. They're watching the cable news, and they know what's going on. It's probably one of the hardest things. I mean, today, the barrier to having people create commentary on the Internet is
1: pretty low. I mean, it's almost zero. Yeah. So anybody can come up with any narrative they want. And so I think what you have to do is you have to make sure that people know who you are. You have to be authentic during the entire time. Also, I would tell you, no one volunteers to take your job in the middle of these things. (laughs) So there's a little bit of, uh, wow, people have sympathy for you, really. And everybody knew that we were going to get through the whole thing. Now, there's times when people are emotional, when they get upset about things they read. And I just tell them, it's not really directed
0: at you. Don't worry about it. And uh, that works. Hmm. So there's a narrative out there, and I think it's probably accurate, but you know, maybe you'll clarify it, which is that Qualcomm comes out of these litigations uh, battered and bruised and vulnerable. And a company rival, Broadcom, attempts to take over the company in 2018. They see an opening and a, a way to uh, go after a rival what did you think when you started to see this as a possibility? I wasn't terribly surprised, actually.
1: Typically, when you have a you know a big dislocation in the stock, it wasn't unexpected that someone else would try to come in and take advantage of that dislocation as well. And so, it was it was yet another thing to deal with, I guess.
0: Is the relationship, from your perspective as CEO, is the relationship you have with the board the most important relationship that you that you need to have? Uh, I think the most important relationship you have is with your team. Is kind
1: of looking down with your team and making sure that you, they think you're, you're having them working on the right stuff. the The reality is, when you're in a crisis, boards and companies, in my view, are really dependent on who their lead is. Now, you you are the CEO until you're not. I like guess kind of the, yeah, kind of the story. Uh, and yeah. I had great support from the board actually, but I think in 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 a crisis situation, there's a reason why. The traditional organization of humans in a crisis is that one person kind of makes the decisions. And the key thing is making sure you have the right one person. But, you know, we we, we had a, just a tremendous amount of board interaction, special committees, calls that I think define good governance. But at the end, you're kind of standing there alone trying to
0: make fast decisions at the right time. That bid by Broadcom was eventually blocked by the U.S. government. And so you get through that. And now here we are in 2020. You're focused on 5G. You really rolled that out in um, September of 2019 with mobile devices. Do you feel that the worst is now behind you? All these crises are kind of have been put to bed? Yeah, I, I do. I think
1: um, we are in as close to peacetime as we have been and, and kind of will be. I mean, remember, we work on technologies that kind of have international relevance and so you tend to uh attract more attention than other companies but but yeah we really feel like we're in the peacetime and it's a you know it's a a tough transition to go through uh the same ramp up that you have to go through from peacetime to wartime you have to go back the other direction
0: and it is a war i guess right i mean that's an interesting analogy you you are essentially a a general leading and are a division or you know more than that
1: yeah i mean it's um it's maybe too easy of a metaphor that to use, but but you're definitely in. A, you you make decisions in a different way. Your intensity is different. Uh, the the way you, the way you organize the,
0: the the mindset, and you have to you have to transition over. You know, I'm 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 curious because you you talk about crisis, and you've you've been quoted saying, "Look, you know, you've got to be ready for crisis. You, you got to like it, and you you got to deal with opportunistic stress, um, or the positive version of it. Yep. I think is what you've been quoted." I'm interested in learned skills. So I, I'm wondering if you think that your ability to handle and deal with multiple crises is just how you're wired? Or do you think that – and maybe that's the case. Or do you think it's something that somebody can learn how to do? Oh, wow. When I look at people, my own
1: experience with other people, it, it tends to just be something that you're wired for. Hmm. You never know who's going to react react well. Now, I would tell you, for for me – I'm probably more comfortable with uncertainty than other people. I actually like it. I mean, I I feel like it's a business advantage to be in an environment where there's a lot of uncertainty. We've had the benefit as a company to be at the front end of some large technology transitions. And I would say for me, if I don't feel like we're in a little bit of uncertainty, I don't feel like we're pushing hard enough into an area that has real innovation. If it's something that other people are doing, and then we're we're measuring it, and then we're doing it, then I don't feel like we're being innovative enough. So I almost use the fact that there's some uncertainty out there as a detector to show that we're that we're pushing hard enough, if if that makes sense.
0: And so it's always been like that in the company. Steve, do you when when you think about your journey as a leader and leading this company? Right, you came in as an engineer and you got promoted and promoted and promoted, and now you're running a company do you think that you were born with those skills or do you think that you developed those skills over time like were you the kind of kid of people said oh he's a leader uh no I would say I'm very lucky you know I I was put in the right place
1: at the right time there's nothing really special in my background or or I think skill set or mental makeup or whatever that really overcomes the fact that I was in the right place at
0: the right time and got lucky a lot That's Steve Molenkoff. He's the CEO of Qualcomm. Steve, join me from San Diego. Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. The music for this episode was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top from Luminary and Built It Productions.